And I think that I've sort of mentioned in that answer what I believe could be fostered in people who may be struggling with competition, which is the idea that separating self-worth from a result, I think that that's something that can get lost in childhood and competitive world that we live in, whether you live in a city. I mean, just in America in general, it's really competitive. Welcome to Chill Track Friday. This is Ali. This is Anne. So, today's episode. I know we kind of always say that today's episode is really special. Uh, but this is, for maybe personally for me, is really a special episode because the idea of the episode is absolutely unoriginal because we've done this already. You did that with me, where you interviewed me for my birthday and I was like well right back at you in July I'm gonna interview you for your birthday and it will be <laughs> other way around Ollie. other way around I was like it's my birthday present to interview you never mind sorry I messed that up already <laughs> um anyway so <laughs> we're off to a great start um yes it was your birthday and you wanted my interview as a gift um so, I want to do that back to you. You went pretty easy on me, so I'm not going to be that easy. <laughs> you were just like, oh, where does Ali fit in your name? I'm like, yeah, let me tell you. It's not a big deal. Like, where does Mawazam come in? I'm like, oh, I can tell you that too. <laughs> um, I have a question. Shoot. You can pick one thing out of these three. Oh, no. And if you pick whatever that one thing <laughs> is, you automatically get to be in the top 1% of the people with that ability on the planet. Like, oh. all right. So the other wait, two, wait, is this like rapid fire? No, no, not okay. rapid fire. I'll, I'll tell you what the three things are and you have to pick one. And if you could have that one thing, you become the top 1% in the world okay. with that ability. The other two that you are not going to pick, they stay the same as in like, you, you don't lose the, that ability, those two abilities, uh -huh. but they stay where you are, whatever you have today in that, okay. right? So the three things are wealth, intelligence, Ooh. or grit. Ooh. Um, I'm... Uh... I'm torn between intelligence or grit. Um, I don't know. Like, I'd say grit. Intelligence can be a real curse, says mm. the one who thinks she's intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> that can be an episode of its own. Um, so, okay, why grit? Um, because I think it takes grit to do a lot of other things, like become intelligent. <laughs> Just kidding. No, but seriously. Okay. I think grit is one of the, the more useful. Okay. So first of all, before I grill you on this any further, uh -huh. that's when someone asked me that question, that was my answer too. So that is not a surprise <laughs> at all. And then they were trying to, the other person was trying to argue like, why, like, why not wealth? Right. Because we can get a little nerdy about this. Right, like, why right. not wealth? Because grit is like, you want to do all this. You have the hard work ethic ethic to just go after it and right. get it done but right. you can have wealth and then you can just have other people do that for you right. and you can just chill speaking of chill track friday um and why not intelligence because then you can do things really smart way and yeah. have like 
exploring alternate options for everything because just intelligence design. Yeah. I mean, so when I was making my final decision, I was looking over at that painting over there and I just had this split second thought of like how it could potentially be super isolating to be really intelligent Mm -hmm. and grit really get the kind of what I said, it can really be used to get the other things that you might want in life, which for me is really just like feeling satisfied and feeling fulfilled. Money is like so external and it can come and go and it's not, for better or worse, it's not a driving factor in my life. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. My answer was great because I just thought it's, I just feel like it gives me more control over things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love getting lost in things that I really love to do and uh, kind of get in the state of flow very easily yeah. if I have the grit. And I, I would like to take that even further than what I already have. Okay. Um, and leave intelligence and wealth where they are today, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting, someone who I see as already having a lot of grit to pick grit. <laughs> what do you have to say about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you're. Um, I'm bar- I'm embarrassed. That's how it. Okay, so let, let me <laughs> let me phrase it a little bit okay. of a different way, right? I, I wrote this down, actually. I said, mm-hmm. so for me, like my perspective, and it's not just me, like from what I've heard other people talk about you, like you do things in a very fearless way that a lot of people are not usually accustomed to. And as a coach, you try to instill that in the athletes you're coaching as well, right? Like going after things. Speaking of like kind of a journey perspective, where do you think you get that from? I think I get it from having to get back up a lot in life. I'm very fortunate to have come from like a super loving family with, I have and had everything that I've ever could have needed or wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily also easy. Mm-hmm. And I think that as we go through life and get older, I feel like you just experience life. The longer you're on the planet, the more you experience. And like, there's been a lot of different things that's like, oh, okay, well, that didn't work. And I'm still okay. And I get back up. And so then it sort of allows me to be like, well, I didn't spontaneously combust that time or melt or completely lose it. So I'm still here. And so then I'll try this. And maybe that doesn't work. Or maybe it does. I mean, sometimes we think something's not working and it does work in some weird way. You just don't see it until later. I think that grit is something that I admire in other people. Mm -hmm. I think that... um, it's kind of like the ultimate challenge thinking on your feet. I think that, and I, I, th- I think that's why I love racing so much. Cause you just don't know what's going to happen in the middle of a race. Mm-hmm. You said you've had to get back up a lot and that has something to do with it. Um, do you have an example of a specific one? Oh, should I yeah. pull out my notebook, <laughs> my journals? <laughs> um, You know, I was like a really fearful child. Mm -hmm. I was very afraid of things and most things. And I was very uh, risk adverse as a child just because I think some of it has to do with uh, just my upbringing. My father is a neurologist and his entire career is based on seeing like the worst case scenario. So it's sort of instilled into me to just to be careful and don't do this and watch that. And so and I went to an all girls school. And so it was kind of... um, that's a whole other topic of like being indoctrinated into having to behave and be certain way. Um, But I would say like a very specific example. Mm. I mean, I was married and got divorced within a year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. That was a big getting up 
pretty, uh, having to quickly move on my feet, think on my feet, act on my feet while also processing at the same time. Um, anyone who lives in New York knows that like when you're making big life decisions, like you have to act quickly without really knowing what's in front of you, Mm -hmm. whether that be finding an apartment or trusting somebody, a friend or a real estate agent (laughs) or a potential employer. Um, I think actually maybe I'm coming to this the long way around, but if you look at my resume, I think that's where you can see that where my grit comes out. It's just like, I've tried, I've done like so many different careers and tried so many different things, just kind of trying to find my way. So maybe to answer your question is not necessarily a very specific answer, but it's more that through process of elimination of what I don't like or what doesn't suit me, I'm finding the things that do. And that's taken a lot of being like, okay, starting over. I've started over a lot. I really admire that about you. Um, And I have specific examples, but I wanted you to sort of (laughs) say them. And then speaking of the theme of sort of, not theme, I guess the idea of tragedy plus time equals comedy is like when you said, you you know, you were married and you got divorced and then you had to think quickly on your feet. And I was like, yeah, you became a pretty fast runner after that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that I know. It really helped me through my divorce. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. That got pretty serious for a little while. I love it. Uh, What was childhood like for Anne Rastak? Um, It was, you know, it's so interesting because we think we know and remember, but when you, I don't know about you, but when I see tangible evidence like photos or home videos, I'm like, oh my God, I really wanted to be a ballerina. And so every home video I'm dancing in the background, usually in some leotard of some sort. (laughs) And what's so interesting to see is how seriously I took everything that I did, and I still do that. So I see, I do see myself in that little person. Um, so I was very, uh, what's the word? I was very um, conscientious. Mm-hmm. I was very shy. I used to, I loved being active. I loved moving. So I loved dance. I used to do gymnastics in the yard, and sim- again, like taking the cartwheel and the round off really seriously. <laughs> Um, I loved, I was a little bit more afraid of swimming. I didn't like getting cold. I told you recently, that's why I didn't want to take sailing as a kid because I didn't want to have to wake up at five in the morning and potentially get thrown catapulted into freezing Mm -hmm. cold water. So again, I was like a little risk adverse, um, really good student. Like I liked school. I was the kind of person that would sit in the front and I wasn't like the annoying nerd, but I would, I liked to be engaged. I think I was in hindsight, maybe easily distracted. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but quiet. I was a quiet person. But A I, nerd, nonetheless. A nerd. I mean, you've met Maura, <laughs> who is my friend from third grade. Mm-hmm. She she and I are still friends. And I think the fact that I'm still friends with someone from third grade shows that like there's a, a real sense of loyalty in the people that I am friends with. And so even at a young age, I like took everything. I was a pretty serious kid. I wish I was a goofball, but I wasn't. It's come a little bit later. <laughs> so the the ballerina part you described, mm-hmm. I have seen a photo of that. <laughs> and maybe it has to, I guess it has to go on to the Insta post with this announcing this episode. But I remember the first time I saw that and I was like, it the look of determination and focus on your face <laughs> as this little girl Um in her pose and making sure that she's it just everything about it it's like <laughs> oh she's she's i'm like well, you didn't become a professional like you're just you've, this picture says so much like <laughs> you didn't <come> a 
I was very into ballet. Yeah. I was very into it. I wasn't even that good. I didn't even make it to toe. I was, you know, I was at that point where you decide, do you go to toe or do you quit? And I, I quit everything I did, which is why I love running, because I don't have any desire to quit. And I wish that I hadn't been allowed to quit things. You know what I mean? Where does tennis fit into the equation? Oh, tennis. Tennis is another love of mine. I love tennis. Um, I played tennis. So I grew up going to Martha's Vineyard. And I learned how to play tennis there at the little club we belonged to. And we were a yacht club. And it sounds fancy, but it was really a shack on the beach. But up the road is the West Chop Tennis Club. And they're, you know, all white, everything. And kind of not (laughs) white people, but maybe actually, yeah, wearing white tennis whites. (laughs) White people wearing tennis whites. Yeah, got it. Pretty much. You get the picture. Um, And so we were like this scruffy yacht club. And the best part of tennis was when we would, the years that we would beat the West Chop Tennis Club. Mm -hmm. And um, so I played on the team. I was pretty good. I remember, um, I think I was like 10 and I was playing a 16 year old and it's like it got there. So it was pretty cool. And I remember I was always the underdog, like, but I, what's interesting is what became ingrained in my head was that it was, that I kind of took that underdog role and I kind of wore it a little bit too long. Mm -hmm. I was afraid to be competitive. Competitive had a negative connotation for me. And I'm not sure if that, where that came from, it might've been my schooling. I wish that I had been it had been nurtured a little bit more competitive because I think actually now as an adult and with running I see the positives of being competitive. Um, so I would always sort of I don't think I would give up, but there was an element of like oh I can't I can't beat the, I'm not I'm not supposed to beat this person or mm-hmm. this would upset the system if I excelled at this. Do you know what I mean? It's right. weird. So that, that's that's so interesting. Um, you and I, well, I think listeners can tell I'm a huge fan of you. So I'm not, actually, let me, <laughs> let, let's not, let's not go that in that, in that direction. So we just keep the conversation. Start. People are like, Oh God, these two. Um, <laughs> every time they interview each other, it's like, Ugh. <laughs> um, but it's, you said, <laughs> I say that because like, I see like how competitive you are in the running, but it's the most like it's how I envision like healthy competition to look like, right? Like this kind of being competitive with yourself, with others, but making sure you bring others along with you. Mm-hmm. It's the point that you I think the healthy competition is like when you realize that everyone else is putting in the same amount, like similar kind of effort like you. And do you have advice for listeners who maybe have children right now, like just mm-hmm. looking back at yourself at that point, like if they are competing in things, like what can they do differently if they see, let's say, if their child is an underdog and maybe they're always like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe they're afraid to upset the system. Mm. And then I sort of gave a just now half-assed definition of what go- I think good competition is, what mm-hmm. you think from mm. your perspective, what healthy and good competition is. Yeah, those are great questions. So I'm going to start with the second question because okay. that one that might help me answer mm-hmm. the first question. What's helped me understand and kind of absorb what I believe healthy competition is is actually watching it in elite athletes, uh, most of them, especially runners. The idea that my excelling doesn't mean you're not also excelling. So my victory can also be your victory. Okay, so maybe I come in like two-tenths of a second faster than somebody else. 
So technically I've won the race, but like I probably wouldn't have done that without that other person pushing me to get that extra 10th of a second. Mm -hmm. So like you're really working together. So there is this beautiful teamwork, like healthy rivalry, healthy competition pushes me to excel. Not because I'm trying to beat that person because it's like, well, let's do this. Like, let's see. I mean, I love watching other people get faster because I'm like, oh my God, that means that there's still room for me to get faster. And like, let's run together because we can help each other. So does that answer like yeah, what I yeah. think competition Absolutely. Is? So that's to you, it's not a zero sum game. It's actually just a sum for all of us. Yeah. It keeps on adding and giving more. Yeah. Yes. I guess. Yeah. And I think that I've sort of mentioned in that answer what I believe could be fostered in people who may be struggling with competition, which is the idea that separating self-worth from a result. I think that that's something that can get lost in childhood and competitive world that we live in, whether you live in a city. I mean, just in America in general, it's really competitive. You know, I don't have children, so I can't speak from experience, but I know that in New York City, when you have a child and they're a few years old, you're already talking about where they're going to go to kindergarten. And so we're sort of raised in this society of like, we need to secure our situation. But it's really, it is back to that like village thing and like how can we all kind of work together? And so it's taken a lot of hindsight to understand this, but I think I believed that if somebody else won, it means that I lost. If this person did well, then I'm not as good as them. But you went through the whole, you went through the same process as that person. Mm-hmm. So how can you say that you're not as good? You just didn't, maybe you didn't run as fast or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Does yeah that- you, absolutely. <laughs> it's like saying there's so many variables involved in any kind of journey, Yeah. right? That just because it didn't work in this specific instance at this moment, doesn't mean there's, no, there's not an opportunity to learn from it, yeah. right? Uh, the biggest thing about losses to come out, like if, if you weren't the winner, then okay, then it's the the victory in that is that you turn around and say, okay, what can I do better? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, Something that's the whole that... point. And then the other person winning is giving you that opportunity yeah. to kind of reflect back because a lot of times what happens in victory is that you just kind of, you take it and you're like, okay, done with this. I mm-hmm. won. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have mm-hmm. nothing to kind of reflect on. It's like a natural way to do it. Actually, it reminds me of a really big Sufi quote. I forget which, I think it may be... Uh, from Amir Khosrow, who's like in the in northern India, and um, I, I, for, I forget what which century is this from, but the, he wrote a poem that literally mm-hmm. starts with asking other sort of Sufi leaders to be like, "If you have been winning for a long time, it's time for you to lose. Like, yeah. there's you're not going to learn anything if you just keep winning." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it brings up two things I think of. One, we were talking about, I think it might have been yesterday, the idea of there's nothing worse than a sore loser than a sore winner. Mm -hmm. And something that was always important to me and still is, is being a good loser. Because there's nothing worse than a sore. I mean, there is. I just said what there is. And that's a sore (laughs) winner. And that is just like kind of obnoxious. But there's something that I love about being a good sport. Mm And going out there and whether it be, I'm envisioning the tennis court because that's where this whole idea became instilled in my head is my tennis coach in grade school and high school was all about etiquette, tennis etiquette and being a good sport, no matter what, even if the opponent's cheating and I have played people who were cheating in tennis and I mean, okay, I could do the, you know, McEnroe throw the temper, whatever, or 
okay, we're going to lose to these people. It's not an honest game. Let's let's have our dignity and play the best that we can. And there's something really satisfying about that when you can, you know, whether that be in sport or in life to like be able to leave a situation with dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing, I totally forgot the other thing that I was going to say. <laughs> uh, well, the, uh, we, we run our podcast like that sometimes. That's perfectly fine. There's a lot to say. Um, you and I talk about each other's stories and we keep finding these very sometimes nuanced, sometimes not so nuanced things that are that are like connections in our journey together, mm-hmm. even though we grew grew up 10,000 miles apart, literally almost yeah. 10,000 plus miles apart. Um, and one of the things that always kind of makes me smile and laugh a little bit is that my first sort of as a child, my first sports celebrity crush was Steffi Graf uh, in tennis, <laughs> which I find <laughs> hilarious. Awesome. I'll watch all of her games uh, in, you know, Wimbledon, US Open, Australian Open. And um, uh, so it was like, oh, I was like looking for my friend over there who also likes tennis <laughs> in, <laughs> in DC, I guess. It's funny. That's so funny. Um, oh, can I just interrupt you? Yeah, yeah, I did sure, win sure. an award called the next Steffi Graf Award. Well, there you go. Thanks for completing the whole the, So that there's there's a connection. <laughs> there's that connection. Even yeah. stronger connection. I thought it was just a tennis connection, <laughs> tennis. but this is more like a very like the triangulates with Steffi Graf. That's that's great. Um I guess my response to that should have been like, get out. <laughs> <laughs> um so tennis at the yacht club, being the underdog, ten year the ten year old who's like playing against the 16-year-olds. That's how good she is. What comes next in Enristex journey? <sighs> yeah, that's a good... You know, it's so interesting, and not to get too heavy, but they say 10 years old is like when like girls start to become like self-conscious about themselves. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's what self-conscious is. <laughs> so it was interesting. Like I feel like my brain took a little while to turn on, so like I really struggled in fifth grade. Um, but then by sixth grade, I, my brain turned on and I was doing well in school. But that that period of like the kind of what's junior high to high mm-hmm. school was really I played sports. I kind of I got through I went to an all girls school. It was super challenging. It was really hard and it was competitive in like all the negative competitive ways that I was alluding to earlier or uh, speaking about the Please rewind back to f- five minutes ago to hear yeah. what she means <laughs> but this is what i this is uh-huh. what i was modeled was you yeah. know it's like kind of cutthroat and um yeah so that period of time was really i just my job was school it was very clear in my family that my our job is our their kids was to do well in school mm-hmm. and i took out all of my teenage angst on the field hockey field i was the goalie which was probably actually a blessing in disguise i used to kick the life out of that ball. It was like the whole pent up day and I I had to put on all this stuff. I I really hated the position. I think I've mentioned this in our preview episode. Um, but yeah, I mean, sports was always, always been my outlet. So it was sports and school. Favorite or worst field hockey moment right out the top of your head. Go. Okay. Best was freshman year, junior varsity goalie. I stopped a penalty shot and it was like a, it was, and it was my tennis, you know, it's like, I knew what to do, but it's just, 
I don't know. It was one. I have fast reflexes, so it was just I could. I don't know if I could do it again, but it was one of those moments, you know, in movies where they like lift the athlete up at the end. Like that's what it felt like. I don't think that actually happened, <laughs> but that's how I remember it. Yeah. And yeah, I was. I just couldn't believe it. And you know, our coach was from Pakistan. Yeah. So that there, there's another yeah. maybe not nuance, maybe totally direct connection is that field hockey is the national sport of Pakistan, and I grew up watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Played very little of it because I was super into cricket. Um, but yeah, that when you told me, yeah, I, I was like playing field hockey, and I was like, oh, what? <laughs> and you're like, you're the goalie, and like, who's to stop this? My favorite memory is stopping a penalty, and I was like, oh my god! Like my immediate memory of field hockey is the 1993 World Cup final when Pakistan and it went to penalties, and there was a penalty that was stopped that ended up giving them the World Cup. Oh my uh, god! And it's like, so. wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a um I mean at the high school level it's it's a bit sloppy but our coach was really good and yeah. I just remember like I we didn't even know that field hockey that men could play field hockey. Mm-hmm. We were blown away by this guy and he was so graceful when he he would show us how to dribble down the down the field. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, it was like poetry in motion seriously. I know that sounds like a cliche, but yeah. I We'll never forget the vision of that guy running down the field. I I do not doubt you one bit because in this uh, I don't know when who who this person is. Maybe we need to look him up. But uh, field hockey in the seventies, eighties, and up until mid nineties in like Pakistan was really dominant. In uh, they had won like within out of the six World Cups during that time, they won four mm-hmm. of them. I think. Oh wow! Um, oh my god! And in especially late seventies to early eighties, they're the that squad of eleven was known to be like almost unbeatable. Oh um, wow! They were really good. Yeah, and they and <laughs> they took the games in Olympics too. They usually took gold in Olympics, which was a lot of oh fun. Yeah. Did you have a favorite player? Uh, so the team I. Uh, Remember, so I, I the I don't remember the team from seventies and eighties, but their games would play all the time. But the the team that I gr- grew up watching in the nineties had my favorite players was actually there were two of them, and mm-hmm. they were brothers. It was a oh. Shabazz senior and Shabazz junior, oh um, and they both played forward. And their brothers <laughs> had the front, and uh, and it was amazing. They had so obviously they had good chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> that's why they, they were there. Um, they were not twins. One of them was older and younger. Oh, the other one was younger, but they were just um, they're really good. So. Uh, and it's probably a cliche to say that because I'm sure if you ask anyone from my generation, they would probably pick those two guys. Uh, and the goalie was phenomenal mm. at that time. I forget his name, but he was also very good. But the Shabazz brothers, like, they were known across the country. They That's were really so cool. Good. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I think listeners already know that you, you've you been in the art world for a long time. At what point that started? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so funny because I used to hate going to museums as a kid. I mm-hmm. thought they were really boring. Which now I'm like, what? <laughs> Why did I go into art history? So I'm the youngest of three. And so I was blessed and I'm always blessed by the fact that, well, particularly as a kid, just having older people around me, I was just learned a lot culturally and also just how to kind of be in the world. And one of my sisters, my sister Jennifer's friend, uh, Colin Bailey, who's kind of like a brother, he was studying art history at Georgetown. And he would come over and like talk about his classes. And I was like, this sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when this was like sophomore year, and then I noticed that there was an AP art history class in high school. And I was like, oh, I'm totally taking that. And it, I remember it was senior year. 
and it was second period in the morning. So that would be, um, we started at eight. So it was like nine 15. I didn't have first period. So I could roll in at nine and then go into this dark little room with eight other students and look at these amazing slides from prehistoric art all the way to contemporary. I was like, this is pretty cool. And then the assignments were like, obviously to memorize artists, painting titles, dates, movements, uh, compare and contrast, but then there was the essays and writing about what's going on. And art history is also about religion and philosophy and um, sociology and all sorts of all sorts of stuff. Science, did I already say science? Mm-hmm. Um, so it felt like, it felt actually really indulgent <laughs> when I was getting, you know, I ended up getting a master's. I went all the way mm-hmm. to get a master's degree. And at that point I was like, this is really <laughs> indulgent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> felt a little that way. Um, you, you showed up in that room looking at slides and you're like, this is my jam. Yeah, it was because I love to write and I'm such a dreamer. So I just would love to try to put myself into the position of like, what was the artist doing and what was his life like or hers? Um, obviously, the like Western canon is heavily focused on men. I think mm-hmm. that's changing a little bit now. Um, but yeah, it was really, it kind of rounded out actual knowledge and also like a fantasy land that mm. I wanted to exist in. <laughs> um, do you know if the book Ways of Seeing by John Berger? I, I can see the title in my head, yeah, okay. but I um, haven't read it. Anyway, it's it's probably, I don't know, like 30 or 40 pages, but it you just saying like the Western can being so um, focused, mm-hmm. ma- male focused, it, yeah. it reminded me of sort of he broke down on how you look at art and how from way back it's been so male focused and sort of um anyway i don't want to give it away it's just so good it's very short and it's so good like it really shaped how i see art in general and i I mean like art across everything Mm -hmm. right like uh, from like your very traditional sense of like going into a museum looking at a painting by mm-hmm. someone versus even just when I look at an ad on on the subway. Like, right. Why is it so oh, interesting. Yeah. Do you own it? I do own it. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I can borrow it. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so you did your master's where? I, yeah, I did my master's at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London, mm-hmm. and I mean it's it's the place. It's like the best place in the world to study art history. And it was such a privilege to go there. And I, mm-hmm. I'll never forget the day that I saw my letter when it came in the mail. And, you know, I was sort of indoctrinated into the idea of like, if you get the thick envelope, you're in. And if you get the thin envelope, you're rejected. And I got a very thin airmail letter. And I was living in San Francisco at the time and was working in advertising. And I used to walk home from the Embarcadero and I lived on Hayes. So it was like a 40 minute walk. And I, I might even remember what I was wearing that day. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, paint the full picture. I think I was wearing Speaking like yeah, like a black top and a red skirt, and you know, like probably a straw bag. It was hot, and um, I got the airmail envelope, and I opened it outside, and I lived in one of those typical San Francisco houses that has the big steps going up. But mine were not straight up to the house; they were it was like sideways, mm-hmm. and. I dropped my bag. I read this I read this letter and I was like, "Oh my god, I got in. I can't believe I got into this program." It's they take I think 150 people a year and there were four people there were maybe 20 people in my time period and four people in my particular mm-hmm. um focus. And I remember I I think 
texting. I had a flip phone then. I think I, it was my first cell phone. This was 19, no, it was 2000. Mm-hmm. And I texted my parents and I was, or I called them, I can't remember. And I was like, get, get your passports. I'm going to London. And they were like, what? What's the court told? <laughs> told who? I know. I per- <laughs> like the first year, well, it's a year program for the half, the, the first half of that year. They were like, how do you pronounce the school? Um, but it's a, it's part of the University of London. It was then. Now mm-hmm. I think it's independent and it's only art history. So they have a BA program and MA program. Then they do the MPhil and PhD. So you could go all the way through. Right. Given that it's so prestigious and like, the art world and people want to go there and such a kind of this exclusive, you know, it, they have a small number of people that they take. So I've talked a lot about it to you. You told me about sort of the imposter syndrome of being there. Can you can you talk a little mm, bit about that? Like yeah. for people getting into places like that and then, you know, there's this pressure of trying to almost like justify that. Am I am I in the right place? Can you speak yeah. a little? What was your feeling about being there and, well, it's the same and as- how it evolved over time? Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because yeah, it reminds me of going into the double A corral for the first time. I was like, uh, am so, I going to get kicked out of here? I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> I was setting you up for it, but you already, you're two steps ahead of me. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> um, the English education system is very different from the American education system. The main difference is I got there and I felt that my knowledge was way too general and that they had very much, they had, um, gotten very specific at a much younger age and Mm -hmm. I felt immediate I picked up on that immediately and I felt completely out of my depth Mm -hmm. and unfortunately the way I reacted to that was not good and if I could do it again I would have I would tell myself my 43 year old self would tell my 23 year old self to that it's okay and just like do what you can and don't be hard on yourself like the what how I handled it was I basically made no friends (laughs) I just was, I came to criticizing in my head. I just thought that, oh, these people are snobs, this and that. But it was really because I felt less than. Mm-hmm. And I actually, but, but it, here's the thing with imposter syndrome is you have, I have this idea of who I am and what I'm bringing to the table, but it's very different from what's actually happening. And I did very well in my program. But what's interesting is that my grade, I started out like very high grades and then I started to get a little bit lower. I was still very high, but they got lower. And it's because I was believing the stuff I was telling myself about not belonging there. And that's, that's, that's kind of, that makes me sad when I look back on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the first presentation. So the way that Cortel works is they do trimesters. So you start out with everyone from your time period. So I was early modern, so it's everyone. So maybe there's 50 people or 30, I can't remember. And you do like general, although when I say general, the court told it's very specific, you know, you're reading methodology and you're reading very important texts. And, uh, and the first within the week we had an assignment, it was oral presentation for 45 minutes and we're going to go in line. And I volunteered to go first because my whole thing is like, get it over with. (laughs) And I gave my presentation and, um, I sat down and I basically was like ripped to shreds in front of the entire class. And I was just like, Oh my God. I was mortified and I just was like, that kind of set the tone for me. Mm -hmm. And maybe it came off as like haughty that I raised my hand, but it really was like, I want to get this over with, like just Mm -hmm. get this hell over with. And I, you know, I worked really hard on it and I thought it was good, but it wasn't what the teacher was looking for. And Mm -hmm. um, so I of course corrected and adjusted and I, I, you know, it was okay. (laughs) It was okay. I got my MA. (laughs) Um, I mean, I could talk so much more about that than, the second trimester is you go into your, 
your particular focus. And mine was um, 17th century Netherlandish realism. Mm -hmm. And so there were four of us and I was the only American. There was one guy, three girls, I'm American. And we go on these field trips and I'm just spewing Americanisms, <laughs> like pants. <laughs> we're on the train to Maastricht and I'm talking about, oh yeah, because they were like, you're so tall. Like, what about your clothes? They were asking about my clothing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, sometimes like it's hard to find pants that are long enough. And everyone starts laughing. I'm like, what are you laughing at? They're like, pants means underwear. <laughs> so no matter what, I was just like out of sync. You know what right. I mean? Um, and then the third trimester is when you do your your dissertation. So that is, there's no tutor. I mean, you have a tutor, but there's no classroom work and it's all library focused and it's pretty intense. Mm -hmm. um, but as someone who loves the library, yeah. the libraries in London are like to die for. Yeah, I've seen your, um, you showed me your dissertation. Oh yeah, um, yeah, it's bound. Yeah, it's pretty professionally done. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I, as much as I could, when I was at CTF HQ, I read through <laughs> the beginnings of it, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is so great!" And it's it gets into the details of whatever what the, the painting you're discussing, or like, no, actually, it didn't exist. Yeah, or, oh, good. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I remember it didn't exist, but you talked about it, and it, it was just so in depth, and for me at least, it was just so nerdy, and it's the kind of thing I love. So just oh, thank maybe you. for the audience, you can give a little bit. Um, so. I wrote my dissertation on the mirror in 17th century. Mm -hmm. Actually, to like be very specific, it's high life genre painting. So there's many different genres. There's like music making, there's lace making, there's, um, those are like the domestic ones. And then most of genre is like means domestic. So mm -hmm. it's things that are inside. Um, and usually exquisite to say higher class things. Um, and that sounds controversial now, but it was, we, we got to move past that because mm -hmm. in the 17th century it was not. Yeah. Um, so my dissertation was on the mirror. and But I wrote about it in terms of it being like the how the mirror is um, a metaphor for the pictorial field as a place of desire. Mm -hmm. So it's something that is a construct. It's not real. You think it is until touch is what gives it away. Mm -hmm. Once you try to touch it, you realize it's not real. Mm -hmm. So I talk about optics and science and kind of the occult and uh, the mirror in labs of the 17th century. And then I talk about the emblematic tradition and kind of vanity and lady worlds and vanitas. And then I do talk very specifically, the opening chapter is very specifically about one painting that it doesn't exist anymore. It burned in a fire. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to write uh, a visual analysis of a painting that doesn't exist and the only image I could find was black and white. And I remember thinking to myself, why am I writing about a painting that's so hard to write about? And I didn't want to write about a painting by Vermeer because then your dissertation, you have to write about Vermeer for however much time and that's kind of inexhaustible. And I thought to myself, I just want to get to the actual the topic here. So I chose an artist that is a little bit obscure in a painting that is, has every element in it that I wanted to talk about, but didn't exist. So I just went ahead with it. And the artist is Peter Jensen Alinga. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but the the painting is of it's of a woman, and her back is kind of 
she's on a chair to the side and she's got this beautiful dress and she's in a fancy chair with like you can see gold knobs on it and she's reading a letter and there's a mirror above her she's at a desk but the angle of the mirror doesn't show her face it shows Mm -hmm. the checkered floor so you can't read her face and she's turned away from the viewer so it allows this whole idea of well what's going on who's the letter from but that's also the nature of letter writing is it's very private so here the artist is capturing a moment that's private and also obscuring the mm. image in the mirror. Mm-hmm. So it's like, then you're also trying to figure out where was the artist technically from this point of view that he was able to, is this a real point of view? Right. And then above him, above her, um, to the right are these windows, lattice windows. And that comes into the idea of the Albertian window of like, the the window is a frame mm-hmm. and through the frame is a picture, but it's real life. And here it is captured in a painting. So there's all these frames going on in the painting <laughs> and on the wall or landscapes and portraits and that's become. You, I was talking about the hierarchy of painting. That landscape was the noble painting genre, and um, you know, <laughs> you're like, thank you. I love that you turn into another person when you get into that. Like it's, <laughs> and and I just have one quick comment yeah. on like, um, and and I mean that like turning into another person in the most like positive, like this intelligent <laughs> someone who's so passionate about what she did. Um, but you saying like, oh yeah, why did I pick a painting uh, that doesn't exist to write about? Like, yeah. Yeah, that's the same thing as like, do you want to run a flat route or a hilly route? Well, hilly, of course. <laughs> Which, the where's same. the steepest hill? Let's go that way. I know it comes from the same place because it's got to be passion, you know. Which brings me to my. BA dissertation, which I was writing about something, I don't even remember what it was, and in middle of the semester, I was like, I can't do this. I switched topics. My mm-hmm. thesis advisor was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I can't write about this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's gotta be right, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then I got to write about uh, the or- the theories of the origin of painting, and then you talk about Ovid and Metamorphosis, and there's just so much to discuss. But I love the, I love, the 17th century for not only the technical ability, but also what was going on in terms of the identity of the artist moving from that of a craftsman to an artist. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that's why guilds were formed in the 1500s because they wanted to make their mark is they're, they're not craftsmen. They are artists and they're Mm going to, they're going to make, it's like unions basically. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I, I got to the 17th century Netherlandish art from Via Caravaggio, who was an Italian 17th century artist. So he was my first love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you have talked about this before, but I think it's a very important and sort of significant moment in your life. So we'll go back to it. Is your first time taking out the Pumas to go run. Oh, yeah. Um, because I think that you you probably you've run before that and on and off and done other things, uh, but that was sort of a significant switch. Mm. Um, and it's actually connected to the art world and like what yeah. happened at that point in your life. Can you tell that story again? So it was 2011, I think, and I was living in Park Slope. I was looking for a job and. I was holding out hope that I was going to get this job and Mm -hmm. I found out that I didn't get it and I didn't know what to do with myself. I was so fraught and just so upset. At that time, I was, I've always been a gym goer. I was kind of like an ellipticaler. (laughs) I just avoided the treadmill. Ooh, one of those. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Another connection. Now I'm like, I'm totally averse to the, um, so anyway, long story short, I, I didn't own running shoes, but I went into my closet and was like, I know I have something in here. And I had these old Pumas 
that I had bought on Carnaby Street in London. They were the um, camo Pumas. I thought, you know, there were street shoes. I thought they were so cool. And they were worn out because they were definitely too old, but I thought they were cool, so I still had them. And I ran around Prospect Park. I just, like, took off around Prospect Park and felt better afterwards. And I was like, ooh, mm-hmm. that was kind of awesome. Yeah. And it took me a little while to realize that it was pretty cool that I got around Prospect Park without stopping for the first time. Mm-hmm. So, and then it was like my friend Jim, who you know very well now. Yeah, he, there's an episode. I with know him. he's I love such that a episode. great guy. Yeah. He got wind of this run, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he was doing his nine and one that year for the New York City Marathon, and he just kind of scooped me up, and I would run with him. But I did. I made every rookie mistake. Like within yeah. a few weeks, I'm running seven miles, <laughs> like a seven miler. Then I yeah. got you know shin splints and stress fracture. <laughs> So yeah, you, you you played through the rookie days just like all of us have in some shape or form. Yeah, but um, it definitely tapped into something there. Yeah, yeah. And here we are, years down the road, in January of this year, you ran at the New Balance Grand Prix Masters Mile <laughs> at the Reggie Lewis Center in Boston. Oh my God, I'm laughing because I'm like, I'm trying to shrink in my chair. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? I know. She's like, getting smaller. Don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something to be said about that, right? Like that day when you did that loop of Prospect Park, if I don't know where I appeared, I don't know why I would appear, but let's just say I appeared. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was like, hey, you. Mm. Like January 2020, right before the pandemic hits, now that I know the future, I might as well know that there was going to be a pandemic. (laughs) Uh, Right before the, you know, uh, in January of 2020, you're going to have a track race with with Masters and you're going to run sub 530 for the mile (laughs) at an indoors track. You know, what, what would you have said to me? I would have told you that you must be talking to the wrong person. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't tell me that I was on mushrooms or something. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be like, you're crazy. I definitely would look over my shoulder. Be like, who, what? You'd run faster. You'll get away from this kid. I know. Then I'd be like, wait, maybe he's right. (laughs) It's funny. Go ahead. No, we just like don't ever know what's happening ahead of us. Yeah. I I guess it's my way of asking, my way of, I guess, suggesting that just keep showing up. You just don't know. Even in the moment, things might feel like, oh my God, like. I really wanted this job or something. Ha- mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a job. It could be just something that does a setback in life. It could even be a some kind of a loss. And then you do something as a result of it. You turn it into a positive force and then mm-hmm. kept showing up. There were a lot of other things that needed to happen down the road, but some, you know, the first step needed to be taken. You, even people needed, to, right? Like yeah. a coach and like and a mentor, someone like Jim mm-hmm. uh, to be there to kind of take it further. But but you sort of had to. He had to get wind of that first run, yeah. which, which is kind of amazing. And then you keep showing up, and you just don't know where it's gonna go. I know. Um, it's kind of amazing, and I didn't really think. I'm one of the. I'm the kind of person that. I just kind of do things and I'd, it's not until afterwards that I let it, that it settles in and I'm like, oh my God, I'm just like, okay, I got to deal with this and then do this and, you know, because life always throws you things. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a couple weeks ago or something that I looked back on that race and I thought, that's kind of crazy because I was injured for most of 2019 and I really had to get my shit together mm-hmm. to be able to run that. Yeah. In a pretty short period of time. Yeah. So actually, let's go back to the year of injury. <laughs> 
<laughs> should we talk about the Bronx? <laughs> Actually, we, you know what? We we should definitely talk about the Bronx because that's such a significant and both comedic and just there's everything in that story. But before we get to the Bronx, that was a joke. You ha- oh, we don't have to talk about it. Damn it! I was. All right, listener, she doesn't want to talk about it, but it's hilarious. So come to us and ask us in private, but it's a really funny story. Um, uh, That story, by the way, happened, fun trivia fact, that story happened the same day uh, Kipchoge ran the, no, no, Kenanisa Bikele ran two seconds short of Kipchoge's 201.39 world records, his second fastest marathon time at Berlin. Um, And I think we we had a record. (laughs) Our first mile was definitely a record. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Which um, is why at 2.39, I was ready to stop. So you had an injury that lasted over a year, I think, or like almost a year. So can you walk the listeners through like how you felt during that time and what you learned, and especially now that you reflect back on that time? In hindsight, I'm really glad I didn't know what I was in for because I really thought it was going to blow over <laughs> quickly, and it mm-hmm. did not. Um, I think what I learned the most from it is, I mean, I – I wouldn't go as far as to say it was a dark night of the soul because I had a few that of those got dramatic before. pretty fast. I had a few of those before, and it was like not that bad. But it was um, in terms of my identity as a runner. I mean, I had to go through separating and being okay not running. And you know what? I think that that got that actually. And I'm sorry that this has happened, but it gave me a head start on the pandemic because I have did not have to go through that during the pandemic. I had already very freshly experienced that. So my pandemic running experience is my reward from going through that injury, which is that I have just been enjoying running mm-hmm. without being like, what am I going to do without a race? Oh, I can't imagine not racing. Like I'm having the year of running that I didn't get to have. Mm-hmm. And I, obviously the circumstances suck. Like I'm not trying to say right. that it's nice, but I haven't had to have any sort of identity crisis about, around it because I went through that during mm-hmm. during the injury. It was really hard to watch people race. Like right now, no one's racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we're all in it together. If you're injured, enjoy your time. Like you're not losing anything right now. You might think you're losing fitness, but I've lost fitness. Like we, we all need to lose fitness in order to get it back. So the lessons that I learned during that injury were that it's like the seasons of life. It's just going to pass, you know? And I think a lot of my angst was feeling like I was missing time or missing experiences. But also when I think back on 2019, I mean, that's when we started the podcast. We had time to do the podcast. I had time to just focus on creating something and turning my passion. It's the same subject, obviously. It was just sitting in a chair. (laughs) Can you pick a favorite racing experience? A favorite racing experience? And it's kind of a loaded question because it could be good for so many different reasons, but if like something just comes to mind for whatever reason, you're like, that was something very special. I think of two. I think of Fred LeBeau 2018, and I think of... The Bronx, 2018. Different Bronx than what we've been talking about. And obviously Boston, 2018. 2018 was kind of a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I say I say the Bronx because I had been training for the Philly half, which mm-hmm. we had just recently been discussing. So, yeah. And that was like a really bad weather day. And so when I got to the Bronx, I had like this leftover fitness that wasn't used at that half. And I remember 
in the last 5K coming back to the finish line, I was seeing a huge discrepancy in the time that I had written on my arm and the race clock. And I thought, wow, I must have messed up my pace band. <laughs> That's my first thought. But the closer I got to the finish line, the more I was like, this can't be wrong, but it's way off. It was off by over a minute. It was like two minutes off almost and that I was faster. And I was just noticing that I was passing different people that I don't normally see in races. And I knew something special was happening in this race. It was like a cha-ching moment. Like that when I talk about that video game of life, it was like I had come out into another level and it was just like, wow, it was totally unexpected. I showed up to that race. It's like, oh, I'm just going to have fun because I had a bad half and I'm pretty fit. Let's yeah. see what happens. Um, so that's one. And that was the race I ended up getting into double A with my time by a significant amount, actually. Yep. Um, and Fred LeBeau, because it was a similar, the theme here is like, I just kind of showed up to the starting line and didn't really have much pressure. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, I, that was my first sub 90 half. I was tripped at mile seven, got up, um, you know, running around central park twice is really hard. <laughs> and yep. so it's kind of, that feels like one of the longer halves. And, um, that was just a fun race despite the being tripped. It was just really fun. I'm surprised to use fun and Fred LeBeau in the same <laughs> sentence <laughs> or the race rather. I think. That's really weird of you. Oh, look, you answered two of my questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> fun and Fred LeBeau, weird. Oh, yeah. Weirdo. But of course there's Boston too. Yeah. I mean, that was a special one. Uh, so we, we have run races together, like cheered for each other's races quite a lot. Um, one thing, and I, I guess this is true of, most of us but i with you i have like these front row tickets to like walk up to the start of the race and <laughs> i can like i i see like you're nervous for the race like come on you have like numbers written on your arms and like <laughs> like if if it's a course you haven't run before we're like okay that hydrant after the capital one <laughs> sign is 800 meters so don't go out too fast at that at that hydrant you need to be yep. 302 for right <laughs> yes like we're doing all of that and you're like oh i have to use the porta potty again like mm -hmm. we gotta go but then the gun goes off and you're this different like beast focused on like yes the race is on get out of my way like nothing else is like bothering me anymore i'm in the zone in the flow until you cross the finish line and then it's the flip side of anxious it's like oh it's done i killed it again no no no, like there's a relief of finishing a, relief. a relief of finishing a good race, right? Like which um it's just so great to watch like you prepare through that prepare for the event itself. And every everyone does it, right? There's mm -hmm. no right or wrong answer in this, right? Like every, people have their rituals and they do things and like when you're describing the mirror and like you pick this painting that didn't exist but then you kind of spend all the time in the library to kind of figure out everything and then all you kind of dissected every single aspect of this painting and your dissertation it's like i'm like oh like when you told me that first time i'm like oh the preparation for the race makes sense mm. now oh my god right that's so funny like i'm like oh that's that's her right and i have just spoken for you for like 10 <laughs> I minutes love i think it. <laughs> it's just my view of like how much appreciation i have like for all the 
like just watching you do that stuff. Can that be my weird thing about me? The race preparation? So that was my way of saying, <laughs> you, my way of answering it for you, that you're such a weirdo. <laughs> Can I share my favorite moments of seeing your face when in these race preparation moments? This is when I know I'm like a little bit over the top. Oh my God, there's that too. You've never pointed it out to me. There we go. Okay, so there's a few of them. So you may not remember this, but you drove me to the Queen's 10K in 2018. Mm -hmm. And I got in the car and I was really nervous. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, my battery only has like 45%. And you go, well, it's only a 10K. <laughs> I like to have a hundred percent battery. I know. I know you're like my battery's only forty five percent. I'm like, yeah, they'll give you a fifty miler on that watch. Like you're like, I think, I think your battery's going to survive a ten k. But then I also realized, if you remember correctly, because I remember this moment. If you remember correctly, I told you, um, you can like if you want to go get your cable, you can plug it into the car charger <laughs> to charge it here. Like it's okay. But at that point, it was too late. I was like, oh, no, I you realize, like, like, oh, I don't. <laughs> okay, that's one. What's next? Okay, another one was um, so, and you know, I, you know, this about me. I, I like to go to the race early because I know I'm going to have to use the bathroom like 5,000 times or at least think I have to use the bathroom. So I actually read up about this. It's the fight or flight instinct mm -hmm. is to like release so that you're light. And mm -hmm. so I just, no matter how many times I pee, I feel like I have to pee again. Mm -hmm. And so I just do the rotate, I go to the back of the line. And um, so once you figured that out, you're just, now we have the system where I just like give you my bag. Yeah. But the first time I ever gave you my bag was at Boston. And I remember it's a testament to how much I trust you because I would never, ever give my bag to someone before a race. And I remember I had to use the bathroom before I got on the bus and I was like, uh, yeah, and I handed you the bag. It, and was, it was that <laughs> reluctant snatch from me, or well, a, a snatch from me and reluctant giveaway from you. Like, uh, I'm like, don't. Want, I was like, I, and then I realized what was happening. I was like, I got this. I'll give you the. I'll give the bag back to you. Don't worry. Like, we'll drop it off where it needs to go. Yeah, that hits my like. I have to do everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are just moments that are like significant to me because it shows how much I trust you. Yeah. But the one in the car was like the, I think that was the one and only time that I was like, oh, yeah, that does sound a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> what advice do you have for our listeners who are running during this time of pandemic? Yeah, I think that that uh, most of us are in that position. I think what I would say is to think about what it is that gets you out the door every day. Because if it's just a race... And I, when I use the word just, then I'm making a judgment on it. But for me, it can't just be a race because then what happens when there is no race? Yeah. Yeah. That's a very interesting point because you can also make the argument that it is what it is. So if it is just the race, then maybe this is a time to rest. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. that's what, that's what this time is. Right. Yeah. My next point is like, I, I, you know, everyone's different. Everyone responds different. Everyone needs different things. And I think part of life is like figuring out what we need. And so I know that my approach in the pandemic is not to go like guns a blazing into a training cycle. I know mm -hmm. some people need to do that, but I would say based on my experience of being injured is that if you're running consistently, you're, you've got a nice aerobic base that you're going to be able to build off of. Like what I would worry about right now is getting injured mm -hmm. or burning out. 
because once once races are open, I mean, who's not going to want to sign up for every freaking race? Yeah. And, you know, I think there's, again, like that season, the seasons and rubber, but like a rubber band stretches and then it comes back. And yeah. this is sort of a comeback moment. I think you and I have talked about this a lot is that the world is a stressful place right now and stress is stress. So you're still experiencing that stress. Mm-hmm. It might not be on your feet in miles, but you're still experiencing the stress. Yeah. Um, so my advice is to just, and I say this no matter what, even when there's not a pandemic, like take it easy, but go out there because you're going to feel better about yourself. I know I do, mm-hmm. but I've, I mean, I've had 20 mile weeks. I've had 40 mile weeks. I want to inject some humor for a yeah. second. <laughs> um, I'm going to inject it very seriously. <laughs> So we talked about this, right? Like showing up and trying things. If if you don't try or if you don't show up, you don't know what what's going to happen. You have to give it an attempt. Sometimes you can be in a really tight spot. You just you know you have to show up. And this is going to sound weird, but there is a the, you have there is a story we laugh about all the time about you know you just have to give it a shot and you may get what you want. There is a story that we laugh about all the time that involves green curry. <laughs> Can you tell that story to our listeners? Yes. <laughs> um, that's a very funny story. This one's for Allison, my sister. So she and I were on the subway. So I think it was the Q train. So we were going over the Manhattan Bridge and we were laughing about something. And she was like, oh, I'm going to order takeout. And then when I get there, it'll be ready. Mm-hmm. But the thing about the Q and coming over the Manhattan Bridge is it takes a little while for your phone to get the reception. And then you only have it for like a little bit as you're on there and then you kind of lose it. So her phone was taking a long time to get the reception and we're getting close to going back underground. (laughs) She finally like gets the call to go through to the, the takeout, the Thai takeout place and they pick up and we're going into the tunnel. She's about to lose reception. She goes, I want green curry. (laughs) (laughs) And then hung up or got cut off. Yeah, Yeah. And so we were, I mean, the people on the subway looked at her. So if anyone didn't understand what I just said, she screamed, I want green curry into the phone, into the phone. And then it cut out Yeah, and everyone was looking at us and she and I are practically rolling on the subway floor. So we, you know, she gets out, she goes home, I go home. And then I texted her. I'm like, so was the green curry waiting for you when you got to the restaurant? Yeah. And she said yes. And we thought it was so funny because they were just like, someone called and wants green curry, so let's make it. (laughs) That's the kicker for me in this story. That all she did was yelled out. She had to just, she had this little moment to get her message across the airwaves. And the purpose was so she doesn't have to wait when she gets there. And mission accomplished. She just said, I want green curry. And they're like, no number. like Or or maybe they had caller ID, but like no name. All they knew what they needed to make. And it was waiting for her. Yeah. And she gets there and they're like, yes, ma'am, your order is ready. You were the one who screamed into the phone, didn't you? So guys, you have to try. You have to just show up. It's my way of saying... This is but, not a Nike commercial of just do it, but it's you have to show up. But it was funny. <laughs> we keep laughing about it because not only was it like her screaming, but it was like, no, please. No, it's just like very primal. Yeah. I want green curry. Yeah, that, that actually makes, that's the other funny part of like, just when you're craving something so bad, you're just, 
yeah, moral of the story, just go for what you want. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you... <laughs> we love you, Allison. I know. She's so funny. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's like the best. It's one of my favorite Allison stories. Yeah, that's so great. And I love that you've taken it on as one of your favorite stories. <laughs> yeah, because the first time you shared it with me and I was like, what? <laughs> um, and going with the theme of the podcast, if you had a training tip for our listeners, and because this was your story, we're going to talk about a life training tip if you have. So oh. you can take running out of it. It can apply to running too, I guess. But. Yeah. Huh, We're going like to get that. extra nerdy. Extra nerdy. Yeah. Well, my tra- my running training tip was going to be sleep. <laughs> so maybe that can be your life training tip. <laughs> Just sleep. Just sleep. Everything's fine. Everything's so much better when you're rested. <laughs> um, yeah, a life training tip is don't give up. I would say don't force it, but don't give up either. Like, I have this little quotation that's on a little piece of paper on my refrigerator. Mm-hmm. It says, listen to your life. The, the beauty and the pain and everything of it, like, cause it's going to tell, it tells you everything you need to know. So I think that particularly in a time that we're in right now where we're forced to kind of take a pause and see what's important. And we're really having to listen to our lives and what are you enjoying what you're doing? Do you like who you are? Um, are your, do you think that you pay enough attention to yourself or to your loved ones or to the things that you have always wanted to do, because I think this is the time to do them. Go for it. Get that green curry. (laughs) Always the wise one. Um, Thank you so much. This can go on for hours and hours. I know, totally. (laughs) Um, Um, Can I thank you, please? No, because you did that in my episode. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, just to say... um, you're such a good interviewer. You ask such good questions. Thank you for making me think about things. All right. Okay. We'll see you in two weeks. We'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for Thank listening. Thank you, Ali. Bye.